Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. A few episodes ago, on 222 to be exact, we interviewed musician and artist Jay Sievers, who lived for a time at the Jesus People USA Commune in Chicago. During the interview, we briefly referenced a documentary film about allegations of abuse at the Commune titled No Place to Call Home. The filmmaker of that work, Jamie Prater, agreed to come back by the woodpile to talk about his own childhood at Japuza, his experience of abuse, the making of the film, the fallout of its release, and the current condition of his own faith. Now, you don't have to have seen the film or have heard the episode with Jay Sievers to comprehend the following interview, but it might help. No Place to Call Home is on YouTube if you want to have a look-see before moving on with this episode. So with that out of the way, let's begin. If you don't mind, give us a backdrop about your family, your parents in particular, because they obviously are where you came from, but also how you entered Jesus People USA. My parents met in Chicago in the 70s. They were both working as um, assisted, well, people who lived in halfway houses. Um, and my mom comes from the area, the like the Gary, Indiana, like Chicago area. So my father was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. He moved here with his mother and his siblings um, to Chicago. I shouldn't say here because I live in Los Angeles or the Los Angeles metro area now. Um, and they grew up in the projects. And my, my dad is the oldest of nine children. Um, my dad is African-American. My mother is uh, Caucasian. And they met and when my mom was very young and they got married in 1975. They had me in 1976. They moved into the Jesus people in 1978, just when I was just turning two, I think. And uh, they were a part of another predominantly African-American, except for my mom, uh, intentional community in Chicago called New Life. And the leaders of the New Life community and the leaders of Jesus people met up and they with the intention of like joining communities together. And that eventually happened. Now, what drew them to want to live in a communal lifestyle or or communal situation? Well, my parents, I believe, were both newly converted. This was certainly uh, a time, of course, it was the 70s, and the Jesus movement was going big, along with that sort of that hippie free love movement. And my dad felt like, and you can see it in my documentary as well, but he felt like, the community offered this sort of Shangri-La, this this ideal environment for Christians, no matter your skin color, no matter sort of your background. And my dad felt like it was a good place to raise a family where there's a white mother and a black father and their children. And uh, so they joined. Would you say you had a good childhood there? I don't speak in black and white terms, mm-hmm. um, excuse the pun. Everything is always sort of a mixed bag. I have incredible memories of growing up in Jesus people. And I have some devastatingly horrible memories. And I'm at this place now where the light shines brighter than the dark. Cornerstone Festival were early uh, childhood memories that were just amazing. Um, Growing up with 150 other children and we were all like siblings on the same floor. And uh, that was amazing. Um, And feeling like I had a bunch of parents. Uh, I I received a lot of love from a lot of people. And that was amazing. I don't think... It wasn't necessarily a good childhood, for sure, but I think I can remember the goodness of it. So I guess let's just get to the the nightmare part of this. Do you want to talk about your personal uh, story of abuse there? I, of course, have no problem discussing this. What has been important for me is that there are other people who are growing up in Jesus people that experienced something way worse than I did. And I, I'm not trying to like make light of it because what I experienced rocked my world. I mean, mm-hmm. essentially, when I was uh, nine or ten, I shared a bedroom with uh, an older gentleman um, who was ten years older than me. I think he was nineteen or twenty. And one morning, he decided to fondle me, and uh, it was at the same time thrilling and terrifying. And I eventually spoke up about it, and uh, it was. It was uh, agreed upon that it did not happen. 
Um, but at that point, and so they treated me as if nothing happened. And so I started to manifest behavior of a child that had been fondled by an adult. Uh, I started presenting myself to men to sort of recreate that moment. When my childhood really took a dark turn, wasn't so much the abuse, certainly it was, but it was when I decided to say that it happened. When I decided to say that it happened is when they decided this child is a threat. Um, and then I was essentially taken out of school, which is the Jesus People School called Uptown Christian School. And I was taken out of school for about three and a half years. So from, cause I didn't talk about my abuse until a few years after it had happened. And so they didn't take me out of school until I was going on 13. Um, so, and I was in essentially a solitary confinement from 13 to 17, 13 and a half to 17. So three and a half years. Okay, so I've been in situations not not exactly like yours, but where the authority figures or the adults, however you want to say it, would tell you, no, what you think you saw, you didn't see, or what you think happened didn't happen. Did you go through that when they, uh, especially when you spoke up and they kind of attacked you or removed you from the situation? None of those conversations happened with me. Like, people didn't, like, I remember talking about it. Well... I remember there's this one gentleman who was sort of a mentor of mine um, in the Jesus people, and I told him what had happened. And then he said, well, I need to go and I need to talk to somebody about this. And so then he went and he, a few days later or a week later, he came back to me and he said, I talked to some people about it and they confronted him, the man that you're accusing, and he's denied it. And I like looked at him and I said, well, it happened. I don't know what you want me to say. And then he's like, well, let me go talk to him again. So he went to go talk to them again and then he came back to me again saying well he's denied it um and that was that and that was sort of the the end of it and i know that there were some conversations happening with my parents at the time that i weren't was not privy to um and it was essentially decided that maybe jamie was making this up or maybe jamie was confused mm -hmm. then there was of course the fallout of that because my behavior changed i was sexualized i was sexualizing other children with you know um other boys my age, we were, um, I was just, a, became very sexual person. Um, I didn't realize I was being sexual. I was just mimicking behavior that I had experienced, but it became intense and uh, it raised alarms with other people. But the strange thing about it was that people weren't asking, well, why is he acting this way? Mm -hmm. What happened with him? Um, they just saw me as a threat. Do you think that the, the person that did this to you that the higher-ups, that they actually believed him over you, or was it part of the kind of a cover-up thing, or what do you think? Well, I want to stay away from the idea of a cover-up, uh, even though perhaps that might be how it's perceived. Mm -hmm. What I think happened is in all organizations, they because if a child or children are talking about being sexually abused by an adult in a religious organization that puts the religious organization in jeopardy sure. so they needed to mitigate that so i think they completely believed him over me for whatever reason right. because it's easier the idea that i got from watching your documentary that and of course we should mention that once you started doing your documentary you found at least 70 people who also have been molested or abused in some way at least my understanding was that uh, Japuza was a little bit loose in screening the people that they took in, like the adults that they allowed to come live in the community. So, for example, some people that had some like sexual predator uh, police records uh, end up living there. But you know, from Japuza's point of view, it was, hey, we're trying to be Christ-like. You know, everybody needs a second chance, or everybody can be forgiven, or everybody can change. However, you want to look at it, is, is that correct or am i getting some of that mixed up no i would say the the intention was uh or the motives were honorable we want to help everyone but they didn't understand or realize and maybe eventually care that you when you bring all of these people in from whatever background they're coming from and you put them in bedrooms with children that's a mix for disaster um not to say that of course everyone most people aren't child predators but 
Christianity and religion tends to attract broken people. And that is uh, one of the beauties of religion is that, you know, Jesus says, come to me, all, you know, all you who are weary. And I, you know, I will essentially, I am your savior. I, I, I've come to heal you and uh, make you whole. And I think those are really honorable things, but I think, you have to do that in a very controlled environment. You can't, I mean, it would be like, I don't know if you have children, but it would be like you saying, talking to a friend and a friend, your friend says, oh, hey, there's somebody that I know who needs a place to stay. And you say, okay, you can come stay in my kid's bedroom. Would you ever do that? <laughs> no. You would never do that, would no. you? That was exactly what was happening over and over and over and over and over. I don't want to sound like I'm trying to defend what happened, but do you think it was naivete or just the culture? Because, you know, especially back in the 1950s and maybe even to the 60s, people just didn't talk about that kind of thing. It, it went on. And I don't know what, what years your incidents occurred, but do you think that had anything to do with it? I definitely think there was some naivete involved and uh, a group of people who really didn't know what they were doing. You had these, this, this council, this board of people who essentially didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem was when, when, uh, kids started talking about their abuse as they were growing up and telling people they didn't take the appropriate action. Um, and they continued allowing strangers in children's dorms. I mean, there was a certain point where in the building that we lived in at Malden, um, which was in Chicago, um, this is the building that was the last building that we lived in until before they moved into their current residence, which is on Wilson Avenue, um, where they found homeless people asleep in kids' bedrooms. Um, upstairs because all the homeless people would be downstairs in the lobby or the dining room and some would just wander upstairs and wind up in people's bedrooms and a lot of those bedrooms were children it didn't happen like every day all the time but it certainly happened Um, and that's terrifying Um, and what's more terrifying as part from any type of sexual being a sexual predator it's like they could have been violent. They could have been, they could have had guns. They could, I mean, so many different scenarios. And you have children involved here, very young children who are, are innocent in the mix. And so I think the inherent problem with, not that a lot of what Jesus people was was doing in terms of their outreach and who they were wasn't honorable. It was, and they did some incredible things. And at a time, at a certain point in time, Jesus people changed their neighborhood. It changed the lives of so many people. There was a lot of good happening, but subsequently also what was happening or concurrently maybe was that during the period where Jesus people was doing a lot of great work, a lot of terrible things were happening too. A lot of sexual abuse from members of the, of the council, um, sexual abuse from members from rank and file members happening with children. Um, so all of these things were happening. Of course, when I was growing up, even with my the greatest memories that I have of, of growing up in Jesus people, at that same time, during the process of make me making those memories, there was children who were experiencing hell while there. And I think the problem was is that Dawn Heron, who her husband, John Wiley Heron, um, they founded this community. And when they founded it, it was a way to keep him protected from his own sexual impropriety and, and deviant behavior. Um, and he had been uh, preying on women and minors um, and going essentially from town to town. Um, and his wife, Dawn, was covering up for him. So then they they built this community. And I think at, at one point after they kicked John Wiley Heron out, the community started to become something else. And I think it had the potential to be something really great. And I think that there were moments and times of greatness. I think Cornerstone Festival was a great thing. I think the ministry to the homeless, the women's shelter. Um, my dad had a, a program called Brothers and Sisters United, which reached out to inner city youth. A lot of them were of color. I think really, really wonderful things were happening, happening despite the corruption of the leadership. This It's a very complex discussion. Oftentimes people approach these this discussion about Japuza or any kind of organization in black and white terms, where it's it's really this mix mm-hmm. um, of of experiences. You you talk to Jace. Uh, Jace has a very different experience than I do, uh, uh, or than I did as someone who grew up in the community. But even my own experience is not this like oh screw that place I hate them. I've never felt that way about them. I've never felt that way. Um, I love them. I still look at that place as 
my childhood home in some ways, even though I probably, I don't know if I'll ever see it again, um, but it's, it's, it's complicated. If you don't mind, just explain briefly how the power structure worked to the community, because I realize I probably am asking you questions as if listeners have already listened to Jay Seaver's interview. Sure. So Jesus people at its height, uh, or because they still have you know leaders now, but it was founded by Don Heron and her husband John Wiley Heron. He John Wiley Heron was eventually kicked out of the community. Don Heron's children, uh, her son Johnny. Her daughter Catherine, her daughter Wendy, their husbands Vic and Glenn, they all became a part of this council. And there were other people involved in that council as well. A gentleman named uh, Neil Taylor, another guy named Steve Fullman, uh, another guy named Danny Cadu, uh, another guy named Tom Cameron. And so the and some of these people were there at the same time, some of them weren't. There was another guy there named Richard Murphy, who was also a part of the council. Some people would leave and some people would come and stay or leave and then come back. But that was sort of the general idea. At one point, there were 10 members of the council. And so the council was essentially the governing body of leadership over the community, which was about 500 people. A large portion of the council, or at, at one point, half of them were are all related by blood or marriage. So Dawn and her children and their and their spouses were all most of them were on the council or they ran the school or they ran the the money office, which is where you would go and uh, request like money to buy shoes or things that you would need, et cetera, et cetera. And so this council of people, they made every decision, what room you would stay in, who you would marry or the permission to marry who you, who you might like, when you could be engaged, advising you on children, um, all of those things. So they were your, they were your, your landlord, they were your boss at work. They were your pastor. They were your children's teacher. And they were essentially also raising your children because most of the time everything boiled down to, well, these are the rules that we have. And most parents would make their children follow along with whatever rules were coming down from the pastor's wife, who might be like Catherine Williams, who was the principal of the school. Um, so that's sort of how it was set up. Mm -hmm. And also these same people had control of the money. They had control of the cars. They had control of the businesses, everything. So it might've been a plurality of leadership within Jesus people, but it was not an equal, they did not live equally with everybody else. Right. So it was nothing like the American founding where there was checks and balances put into place or term limits or something no. to anticipate that the, that all humans could be corruptible at some point. Yeah, and they would say publicly, "Oh, you know, we keep our, we keep each other accountable." And they might think that they do, but the community itself could not keep them accountable. And if people started to speak up at a certain point in their history, they would be like, "You got to go." And that's that was another thing. That was another big, huge deal. Is you know, they're your landlord, and uh, if you didn't tow the line, you're out. Um, and it happened to. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people. So then there was fear there. If you don't tow the line, if you don't fall in line um, with the group thought or with whatever, and they felt like you were causing a, a scene or you're causing other people to question things, they would decide that this, this couple or this person needs to go. Now, you probably would be able to talk to some people who would be like, well, I question things and nothing happened to me. And I'm sure that might be true, but that wasn't the general experience. Theologically, what was their background? I know that they were out of the hippie, the Jesus movement, uh, that kind of thing. But was there a doctrine? And the reason why I ask that is, I know like in a lot of churches, especially in the charismatic and Pentecostal churches, there's a big emphasis put on authority. And if someone has been granted that authority from God, and of course they may uh, draw from uh, St. Paul when he talked about in Romans, you know, about earthly authority, and that earthly authority had to be obeyed, you know, that, hey, I'm almost the mouthpiece of God at, at this point. Is that your perception, or do you know what was their justification? Well, certainly they did obviously come from, you know, that free love hippie movement but that was the jesus movement was uh, an offshoot of that so it was like yes it's free love and jesus loves you um but at the same time it was very conservative very pro-life a very fundamentalist conservative uh 
version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of implementation, it was very much like the pastors knew the will of God. The pa- you know, we think God's saying this to you. We think God is saying this about, we think God is telling us that you need to do this. We think God is telling us that you should do this. And God spoke to me about you and so and so and so and so. And that's how they governed. Mm-hmm. And so you throw God into the mix and what are people going to say, especially people who have a lot of people who have come from broken families um, and they maybe don't have good relationships. So Jesus people becomes your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the thing, too. And if you were to challenge that, you're challenging your family. So it became very difficult. Also, I think it's it's important to say that. The Jesus people I'm talking about right now is not the Jesus people that currently exists. They're very different right now. They're very, very different. They have different leaders. Um, it's a whole different world. When my documentary came out, most of the pastors stepped down or left the community. So I, I just feel like that's important for me sure. to uh, state. So it's my understanding when you started to do this documentary, your intention was not to talk about abuse or it wasn't even on your mind, I, I guess. But so I'm curious, like, what was your original intention and when did it change to become basically about the abuse? Um, my original intention was to explore this crazy, crazy, crazy place that had some terrible memories, but some wonderful memories. Just explore, like, what was that? Mm-hmm. What, how did we grow up? What was that? And I was... When I first started it, it was like eight years after I had left Jesus People. Um, and so I just got a camera. Um, I remember, yeah, I just bought this camera and I decided that I wanted to explore this life living in a commune growing up with 150 kids and what that would, what that was like for as many people as I could talk to. So that was my intention. That's the movie that I wanted to make. Um, then, of course, when I put together like a two-hour black and white, really rough version, rough audio, rough everything. And I uploaded that to YouTube in a private link. And I let all of these people in this group devoted to my film watch to hear feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I heard feedback, everyone was like, Jamie, you need to get more footage and you need to interview more people, essentially. Um, and it was clear. The story was telling me what it was going to be. Um, and that's sort of what happens in documentary. You can set out to have a, a narrative or or um, an idea of what you want to do. But oftentimes, in those interviews, the story comes out. And the story came out, and it wasn't something that I wanted to do. Um, I did it. I mean, like, there was a lot of momentum. And I did a Kickstarter, and I got a bunch of money, and I bought a bunch of uh, equipment, and I was able to fly around the country and get a lot more interviews. I w- really wanted to romantically explore this like hippie upbringing that I had. That's because at that point and still today, I have more love than I do anguish over my upbringing. I just have more forgiveness um, and I can see light more than I can see dark. Um, But that wasn't, again, that wasn't the story that I was supposed to tell. And that was very difficult for me. It was very, very difficult for me post release to be surrounded by all that darkness of all those stories. So, yeah, I didn't make the film that I wanted to make. Um, I probably will never make that film um, because I don't think that that film exists. I don't think that that world exists. But Obviously, you loved your community, uh, your your extended family that you grew up with, and I, I assume that you had a lot of um, anguish over putting out the film because a lot of people would get hurt, or you, you maybe did you fear that it would hurt the organization to where it would collapse? Yes, that wasn't so maybe so much of fear, but I felt like I love them so much that it's also still all of my youth is in that building that they live in right now. I mean, my bedroom was 317, I think, um, and that room still is there, and I would love to see it. And I, I realized that I was um, destroying any possibility that I would ever be able to see that place again. Um, and that was difficult for me to do. But I also knew these all these hippies who were big on social justice, who, you know, rallied for pro-life and they rallied for this cause and that cause. And they went out and they had marches. Those are the kids that they raised. So they raised us to look for justice, to look for truth, to find the truth. There was even a, you know, Cornerstone Magazine was one of the, mag- the magazine that they you know, that they released and they had this whole big thing on raw truth. They were always about truth. 
that's who they raised me to be. And so I felt like, well, this is what I need to do. Um, and it wasn't, I didn't, wasn't releasing it like, yeah, I'm trying to rat them out. Or mm-hmm. I just felt like this is the truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm not afraid of it. I wasn't afraid of it. But post-release, I suffered from like intense depression for over two years. I mean, intense depression. I had lost my home, my, my childhood home. And knowing that, you know, essentially I excommunicated myself from them. Um, and that was hard and I regretted it for a while. I really did. I regretted I regretted making the film. I, you know, I when I started the film, I had this great job, and um, I had a partner at the time, and I was doing okay. And then by the time the film was done and out, I didn't have a job, I didn't have much money, and I'd lost everything. And I just really fell into really a dark place for a long time. Did you lose everything because of the film? You're saying? No, I, I had to make decisions personally to get this film made mm-hmm. one of them was quitting my job at the time i moved in with my parents um i gave up a lot for it um and after for a while afterwards i was very bitter at that i was very bitter that I, i'd given up so much and i felt like well what do i get out of all this you know and i wasn't it wasn't a monetary thing i just felt like i was angry at god i was like why did i even do this what was the point and i was a part of a lawsuit there was a lawsuit going on for a while um I had lawyers, um, they were suing the Jesus people and the Evangelical Covenant Church. I was deeply involved in all of that until my lawyers decided to drop me because they believed I couldn't be quiet. Um, But at the same time, I was like, I can't like be silent. But the big clincher was that they wanted me to sign a document that they wanted me to make a public announcement that I got some things wrong in the documentary. as it related to Johnny Heron Jr. And uh, a friend of mine at the time, his name is Boz Chavidjian. I don't know if you know who he is. Uh, Boz Chavidjian is Billy Graham's grandson. He he runs a company called Grace, which uh, investigates sexual abuse in religious settings. Incredible guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I talked to Boz and showed him this document, he was like, who are these people even working for? in terms of my lawyers. And he's like, don't sign that document under any circumstances. So I didn't. My lawyers dropped me. Then I got a second set of lawyers. They dropped me too because I wouldn't sign this document. Who is coming after you? Jesus People USA? They're lawyers? Yeah, okay. yeah they're lawyers. Uh, they hired this big um, defamation lawyer. And my, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but I believe that they gave me a document that if I signed it, it would remove any integrity I would have had. And it would have told people, well, Jamie was just after money. Because I had heard that, too. from I'd seen it on social media, people saying Jamie's just after money, um, which I never was. In fact, when I first started working on the documentary and I realized it was heading in a different direction, I met with representatives of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And I just was like, let's just get an apology. Like, let's talk about this. But essentially, they everybody lawyered up. Um, and even my friends at the time, some of them who were involved, and helped me with the documentary. They were like, I don't know if you should be meeting with these people without a lawyer. And in my head, I'm just thinking, well, but it's the right thing to do. And Christians want to do the right. I mean, I was naive that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't realize that it's about liability and litigation. And if they say, yes, we hear what you're saying and we validate it, then that opens them to be sued. And that's what they don't want. That was all in play. I had no idea that that was what was in play. And then eventually... I did get my lawyers and it became about money um, until I uh, until my lawyers dropped me and I retained my voice and essentially their rights to the film. Did I get any money? No, but I I had something more than that. I had my integrity. To reiterate something you had said earlier about the the Cornerstone magazine and their uh, kind of journalism, I, I almost called it yellow journalism, but that, that's kind of a <laughs> negative term. But uh, one of my listeners, after they heard the episode with Jay Sievers, they wrote me and reminded me that uh, it was Cornerstone magazine that uh, busted, it was a Christian comedian, Mike Warnicky, I think his name was. Yeah, Mike Warnicky, yeah. Warnicky, yeah. And he had made up this whole backstory for himself that he had been a Satanist or something. And uh, it was Cornerstone Magazine that brought the truth to light, which it was all fabricated, you know. 
And so I can see if you had been raised that way to call a spade a spade, I mean, you were doing exactly how they raised you to do. Should have been patting you on the back, but. Well, and it's not to say that, you know, everyone wants to know the truth unless it involves them. Mm. The truth costs people. The truth costs you something. It really does. Everyone lo- loves to watch documentaries and they love to, you know, we're, we're in a civil rights movement, the, the likes of which this country has never seen. People are out there protesting. Everybody loves the truth until mm-hmm. it involves them. Oh, yeah. That's just how it goes. Yes, that's Jesus. what Jesus people did. And you had people working in the magazine on teams like uh, they had like uh, sort of like a cult arm of the team of of the writing team where they would investigate calls for people who would have uh, accounts of being in a cult or whatever like lauren stratford i think that was another woman that they um found out who was lying about most of her experiences or whatever i don't know the ins and the outs of that story Um, but that's what part of what jesus people's journalism was about was finding the truth exposing the truth Mm -hmm. um and i'm not saying that i did everything right uh and, and that, you know, that's a criticism, especially in the day of social media. Everyone's like, well, you shouldn't do it this way. You shouldn't do it that way. And I don't know if I did it all right. Mm-hmm. I just know that I had to do it. I was hesitant to post the initial interview with uh, Jay Seavers because, again, I thought, like, what if this was me somehow? Or, you know, because you could dig up something on me, probably, certainly, you know, and how would I want it told? Or, you know, it, it's something, obviously, we're all, you know, we're all flawed and we all, you know, are sinners. But how is a graceful way to confront it when it's gotten out of control and there's, you know, power involved and victims are being swept under the rug? So I I think you did the right thing. Hopefully one day someone will come thank you. Has has anyone thanked you? Yes. I mean, a lot of the people involved who I interviewed, I've had thanks for sure. Um, Unfortunately, um, even in the the process of the documentary, which when I was working on it and before it was released, the lawsuit was going. And so that lawsuit ensnared a lot of the people and involved a lot of the people that I had interviewed. Even at that point, post, post-release of my film, I had lost some friends who were in the film because they didn't agree with how I was acting in relationship to the lawsuit. A lot of people I have remained friends with, but there's definitely factions involved and there's people who think that any criticism of Jesus people is is tantamount to blasphemy betrayal yeah <laughs> uh, or then there's people who who say to me who who support me and if the Jesus people leadership today were to say hey Jamie we'd like to talk to you um, about your movie and everything I would get on a plane in 10 minutes and go meet with them Um, Because I believe in reconciliation. I believe that's who Jesus was. Um, I think that's who Christ's heart is, is reconciliation. But they're not interested in that. Um, They've never been interested in that. They've never even formally, publicly validated any of this. It's all been silent. Well, that's what's very intriguing to me, is the fact that you're still a Christian after all of this. You hear many stories of people just growing up where the church they go to, maybe someone's mean to them or maybe people aren't that loving or something, and that, that sours them on religion in general, and they stray away. But in spite of everything that's happened to you, you know, you still have faith. How do you explain that? And how do you see God and you know, human beings and Jesus people and yourself, all that? Um, well, my faith is complicated. I'm gay. Um, I, you know, it took me a long time to reconcile my love for God and that God was saying, hey, Jamie, I think you're okay, um, because I was raised to believe that those two things were mutually exclusive. I was raised very fundamentally, and the Bible and God was used, was weaponized against me and everybody I grew up with. Um, a lot of people that I know who I grew up with are not believers. Uh, they have fully rejected it, which I completely respect, um, and I would reject it too. And I think I've also rejected the form of Christianity that I grew up with. Um, I've met Christ on my own, on my own terms. Um, and I don't adhere to any sort of mainline Christian dogma, I should say, but I also walk through this world looking at, looking at the world differently than, I mean, if you're straight and you are Christian, there's a community waiting for you, isn't Mm -hmm. there? Um, if you're gay and you're Christian, there isn't really, I mean, there can be, I suppose, um, pockets here and there, but it's a much harder path. But I just had to find God on my own terms. And a lot of that was just years of rejection, rejecting everything that I had 
been taught to believe because it was just all the water was contaminated. All of it was contaminated. And, you know, I was raised in a way where it was beat into us every day, not physically, but like verbally, you are horrible. You deserve hell. Get on your knees and beg God for forgiveness. And I remember even as a child thinking that doesn't really make sense to me. Like if God is loving, why does he like, why does, if we're made in God's image, like, why are we so terrible? I'd also hear this mantra, your heart is wicked. And as a child, I remember thinking, but my, I don't think my heart is wicked. I think my heart wants good. I don't know where that came from. I don't know where that dogma came from. Because it wasn't just Jesus people espousing those beliefs. It was mm-hmm. Christian Christendom at that time, a lot of it. Um, nowadays, you have very progressive arms of of the faith who are LGBT accepting and they realize, Hey, God is for everyone, not just for these white men or white people over here or whatever. Or, um, but even as a child, I remember thinking this doesn't make sense to me how you're preaching this. I don't feel this way. This doesn't feel right. So as someone who does search for truth, I continue to, as an adult, I just, was trying to find the truth of what God was saying to me. I would say I had a bit of a reconversion experience in Hollywood in 2005, I think it was. And I was at the Grauman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and I was watching X-Men The Last Stand. And there, at the scene, the movie opened with this scene of, you hear this child crying and um, the camera's, slowly panning and you see like down feathers kind of floating in the air and you see feathers in the ground and you're kind of figuring, trying to figure out what's going on. And you hear this father beating on this door, trying to get into the bathroom. And then the camera pans over and you see this little boy with this, like not a saw, but like some type of thing that sands down heavy equipment, but he's sanding off. He's trying to remove his wings from his back because Mm -hmm. he was, he believed that how he was born was wrong Uh um and as terrible as it was he believed that his gift was a curse because that's how he was raised and so i remember walking down hollywood boulevard afterwards and the sun like it was had just rained it was wet on the ground the sun was i don't know if it was setting i don't know exactly but the way the sun was positioning was shining all over me and i remember just hearing god saying i love you just for who you are don't worry about it and i was like okay that's all that i need and i've still honed my faith and it's always changing it's always growing i mean i don't i'm i i'm not like this hardliner at all i think uh god's pretty big he's much bigger than people i don't even like to refer to god as he but um i do believe in jesus i do believe in the deity of christ but i also think that there's a lot of things that are unexplained and i think that uh, god doesn't need any help and god presents himself to people in whatever way they can handle him. That's what I fundamentally believe. But I also don't walk those paths. I only know my path, and I only know that minute by minute. I don't even know that day by day. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I really, again, I I don't know why I still believe. I just think that it's the hand of God saying, keeping close to me as, as it's always kept close to me all my life and seeing the truth for the lie. And I think I was raised in a lot of lies, lots and lots and lots of lies. It's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I also oftentimes think that with Christianity, it's sometimes deserved like, and people have daggers just to throw at Christianity, daggers and daggers. And I've often said Christianity deserves every dagger it receives. When you weaponize a faith against a group of people, what do you expect them to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up with a bunch of people who's, who Christianity was weaponized against them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, they rejected it. How else are they going to respond? With me, I just continue to journey through it and talk through it. But it just happened that way, I suppose. One of the more touching moments of your film is when you're interviewing your parents, and obviously they regret the bad stuff that happened at, at Jesus People USA. Uh, how is their faith today? 
Um, my parents' faith is very strong. You know, they're Christians. So they go to a church. Uh, they attend the same church. My sister and them, they all go to the same church. Mm-hmm. I go to a church, but I don't really call it a church. It's like a home church mm-hmm. um, where we just kind of hang out and talk and have brunch. They, you know, they certainly experience a very different form of Christianity than I do. Um, the Christianity that they experience is one that I feel very wounded by. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will not, like, I will not even go into a church. Like, I, I just, I can't handle that setting. I can't handle sitting in a seat while people are up on a stage performing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can't handle it, but they're okay with it. And that's all right. That's what they love. That's what speaks to them. So that's great. I don't judge them for it. Um, and their faith is pretty strong. I mean, I'm close to my parents. Um, they know what I go through. They know what I experience. Um, they were there for me when I came out of the closet as tough as it was for them. Um, they're pretty awesome people. So back to Jesus People USA, as you've mentioned, they have never formally apologized, but it does appear like that it's a different place, like you said. So have they made structural changes to the organization so this kind of abuse doesn't happen again? Absolutely, I would say yes. There's They've been completely redesigned, um, and most of the leaders who were there are either not there now or they're not in position of leadership anymore. Um, so structurally, internally, they are a completely different entity than they were when I was growing up. And that was always been the nature of Jesus people anyways, to change. They've always changed, but oftentimes that change came because of sort of dumb reasons, or maybe they had kids, that their own kids, the leadership's own kids were growing up and they wanted to do something. So then they would do that thing, which would then change the rule for everybody else in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the issue at heart with Jesus people right now is sure they've changed structurally. And uh, I think that they're really trying to safeguard themselves from any further accusations that they allowed abuse to occur. They've also never publicly accounted for or atoned for the sins of their past. Mm -hmm. And I don't care how much that they've changed until they do that, until they can publicly do that. It's just window dressing. Mm -hmm. If you think about it that way, like if you say someone abused your child and you find out about it and your child tells you about it and you're anguished and you're upset, years go by, your child's grown up, but you hear about this person that did it and someone's telling you, oh, they've really changed. They've, They've done this. They've gone to... Africa, they've preached to whatever, all of yeah. these things. You are probably going to be like, "Well, that's great," but my kid is my kid is sitting here with no closure. I sent you an article to read, and I had a comment at at the bottom right. of the article. And this woman is describing her experience with Jesus people. It's very interesting, and eventually she does get to a point where she talks about the abuse allegations. And uh, I was hoping that you sort of pick up on what my ire in that is she talked about it and she went over it, but then she completely blew it off. Like, you know, I'm not, not say that, you know, they're all lying about it, but I'm thinking like when I was reading it, I was like, how can you give them a pass on this? And the church at large has given Jesus people a pass on this because they've had a good experience or because they haven't had an experience like mine or the many other people that grew up in this environment. And I'm telling you, if these were your children who had experienced this, it would be a very different story. And my my issue with Christendom is stop giving these people a pass. They do not deserve a pass. They don't deserve condemnation, but they deserve accountability. And people need to draw them into accountability and draw them into a place where they can say, yes, all of these kids who were a part of this documentary in other ways have talked about their stories. We've heard their stories. We hear them. We think even if it's just some type of public acknowledgement that they've heard our pain, there's not even been like the smallest concession given. And I think that that is, I hate this word because I have a complicated relationship with the word, with the idea of sin or the word sin, but I would say that is immoral of them. The change begins in the heart and everything else is window dressing. And if you don't have a heart change and if that heart change doesn't include Christian reconciliation, you have not changed. Wouldn't it be great if one day they did apologize or recognize everything and then showed your film on top of the two tables and the giant TV from the 80s? (laughs) Because it's a great warning to people, which leads me to my next question is, if you were to start a Christian commune or a commune of, of any sort, how would you structure it so this this kind of thing wouldn't happen again? Or would you even 
create a commune? Um, well, I certainly think that religion in communes, religion, uh, religion involved in a space where people are actually living there is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think probably what's more dangerous about that is leaders, um, giving leaders the control and then having everyone follow the lead because everyone's fallible. Everyone makes mistakes. And when you make a mistake as a leader and you're in charge of a commune, those mistakes reverberate to everyone that decision affects. I do love the idea of communal living. I like to live with people. I enjoy it. I miss that portion of Jesus people, just the closeness, the bond. And I would live communally again. I I just would never live communally in a religious setting ever, ever, ever. Um, I think it's just a cocktail for, well, I think God's saying this or we think God's moving you on. And I, I, I don't know. And I think the quote, absolute power, you just couldn't give anyone the power. I think all of the members would have to have equal say as to what happens, when it happens, who it happens to. um, And that's also complicated. So I think I would rather maybe a community or a commune where people had their own homes and they lived in a neighborhood or maybe on land where you've all you agree to co-op some something or whatever. But I and obviously what you're hearing from me now is just the baggage of of uh, being terrorized by religion. And I also think like Jesus people espouse this idea that the way that they lived was the ideal way that Paul talked about um, in Acts about like this Christian communal way of living, when in fact that probably wasn't the case. Paul was probably speaking to, well, he's definitely speaking to certain people at a certain time in a certain place in human history and religious history. I don't think that there's any ideal way that Christians need to live. I think we just need to live in love. And if we're living in love, you're living the way you should be. Well, I mean, I I think people forget historically that the early church were certain that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. So maybe in a short time, you know, absolute communal living can work. But obviously it didn't because, you know, they're not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Jesus people, it's still there. You know, they're right. still uh, on Wilson Avenue in uptown Chicago. They're still going strong. Um, you know, and I, I, I should mention this. I've recently seen photos of Jesus people and a lot of their young people out there marching Black Lives Matter with the protesters. Mm-hmm. And I made a comment on their Facebook page saying, oh, this is awesome. And I do think that it was awesome. But then I sort of rethought it. And I thought, you guys can go out and you can hold up signs saying Black Lives Matter. What about your own children's lives? Do they Mm -hmm. matter? Because you're not out validating that. You had all of these people saying all of these terrible things happened to you, but you could not validate that. But you can go out on the street and you can validate Black Lives Matter. And I just was like, how hypocritical of you to do this and this is like you you have to walk the walk not just and i don't even know if they talk the talk but and i'm not trying to like poo poo them for that because i believe in black lives matter i believe that the racial the civil rights movement that's going on right now is wholly important um this country changing in ways it's never changed in its history it's amazing um it's all light i believe but as it relates to jesus people they have some atoning to do and uh they need to validate their own survivors of their own system. Even if that system has gone away and it's different, they still need to validate that. And if, again, if they were to call me or message me and say, Jamie, we want to meet with you. We want to talk with you. Please come and see us. I'm there. I'm there tomorrow. I'm there in like 10 minutes. Like that is my heart. And I wish it was theirs too. I mean, what you're saying about acknowledging their past is exactly to bring it to like racial terms. Like if America claimed that they never were racist at some point in their history or, or had slaves or, or any number of injustices. I mean, yeah, that would be maddening and uh, definitely immoral to sweep all that under the rug, which, again, like you're saying, uh, Jesus people has done. It would go a long way to just to admit that and maybe let the healing begin, so to speak. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think we can find healing on our own. We don't need, like, I don't need Jesus people to heal me. I don't need Jesus people to find healing. Jesus people needs to heal themselves. Right. Um, and like you said, uh, America is suffering from this great conversation that we've refused to have with our with ourselves over and over and over because we're too busy being entertained. Now you have a pandemic that shut everything down. You have uh, a recession that's also shut everything down. People are at home and you have... Uh, a federal leader who is actually a reflection of who we've been, who is a reflection of the conversations that we're choosing not to have. And Jesus people has not had that conversation with themselves. Um, and until that they can, they can include survivors of the abuse 
and other ways, even Jace, you know, I heard it in his voice listening to that episode, which was fantastic, by the way. There's a lot of hurt and pain in him. And that's not to say that he hasn't found healing in his own way, but there is a, a divine call upon them to show the face of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You're going to call yourselves Jesus people, then be Jesus. Even if they don't agree, like even say your child child comes up to you and they say, and they're, they're 25 and they're like, there's something heavy on their heart. And they say something that you, you know, something's been bugging me, dad. And you know, when I was 12, this thing happened and you're like, Oh my God, I didn't even know, but that wasn't my intent. It doesn't matter what your intent was. What matters is making it right in the moment, finding a place where you both can reconcile in love. And I think that is so important. And I really wish Jesus people would do that. I really wish they would. Like, I want that so bad. I want to be able to go home. And my title for my documentary was called is called No Place to Call Home. It's funny because I think people took that title as me saying, that's no place to call home. Mm. What I was actually intending with that title was after leaving, not having Jesus people in my life, I have no place to call home now um, as sort of like this wanderer outside of that that collective that I was raised to live in and stay in. Um, I don't have a place to call home. Um, and I've always been looking for that home. And Jesus people has continued to occupy that despite all their darkness and all their light. They still occupy that place for me. Um, and so my my desire for them is to take up their end of the mantle or the rope and pull me back towards them in reconciliation, warts and all. Yeah. Well, I hope it happens. Me too. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you again for your time, sir. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Okay. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you want to plug your film real quick, uh, tell them where they could find it. Yeah. So uh, it's called No Place to Call Home and it's on YouTube for free. It's about an hour and 37 minutes. And yeah, um, it's a tough film. It's not easy to watch, but I think it's worth it. Again, that episode with Jace Seavers is in the corner back by the woodpile, episode 222. And if you're still in a communal mood, you might check out episode 211, which was about one Christian's tragic experience in the giant commune that was Chairman Mao's communist China. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.